Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold, and I'm excited for the whole week. I'm very uh, excited about Holy Week, and so this week is all Holy Week, all day long, every day. So today, I've got David Mathis with me in the studio. He serves as the executive editor at DesiringGod.org. He's a pastor at Cities Church and an adjunct professor at Bethlehem College and Seminary. He lives in the Twin Cities here with his wife and four kids. David, welcome. Thanks, Bill. Good to be back with you, brother. Thank you so much. And you've written a book called Rich Wounds, The Countless Treasures of the Life, Death, and Triumph of Jesus, which is a 30-day cross-centered Lenten devotional that gets your heart ready for Easter. One thing that I'm most excited about with that book, part one is on Jesus' life. Part two focuses on his death, seven different meditations, kind of examining the diamond of what he accomplished in his death. The next seven are about his resurrection. Then the last eight, this is the Part four of the book, the final eight reflections are on Holy Week. Fantastic. From Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday. And uh, I'm, I've been very excited. For years, I have loved celebrating Holy Week. For, for myself, my church, our family, we make a lot of ad, out of Advent mm-hmm. after Thanksgiving leading up to Christmas. Uh, maybe we mention Lent a little bit. We don't make a big deal out of Lent. But Holy Week is a more significant thing. That eight-day stretch Fantastic. to uh, focus on that last week of, of Jesus' earthly life before his death and resurrection. Yeah. I appreciate you taking time to be on the show today. I know you're preparing your a message for Easter Sunday. That's right. You're preaching, and uh, I, I'm so glad because I, I hope and pray there's many people that are going to come along with family Mm. That may not be uh, regular attenders of church that are going to get a chance to hear the gospel. And we have been preaching through uh, the book of Galatians. And so in the last section of Galatians, Galatians 6.14, there's that great word from the Apostle Paul. He says, may I never boast except in the cross of Christ by which the world is crucified to me and out of the world. And so one way to summarize that is boast only in the cross. But what about Easter Sunday? Can we boast in the resurrection too? So I'm, mm-hmm. so I'm excited to talk about how the cross and resurrection go together. Yeah. Do you want to take us on a little journey uh, of this week? I would love to. Yeah. So maybe for the listener, maybe you're at a church that celebrated Palm Sunday mm-hmm. yesterday. But I would I would guess that most listeners have some familiarity with a, a church in your background or hearing of it from a friend where the palm branches came out. Sometimes churches like to involve the kids, that the kids have the palm branches or learn about that in Sunday school. But Palm Sunday, as many know, is that day, that Sunday leading into this final week of Jesus' life when he entered Jerusalem. The holy city, which is significant. The city that kills the prophets. This is the the capital of God's ethnic nation uh, in Israel. And Jesus comes into Jerusalem in what we call the triumphal entry. But he doesn't come mounted on a beat a stallion. Not a war horse. (laughs) Not a war horse. Doesn't come in on an elephant or a tiger, you know, something magnificent. He comes in on a donkey, on a beast of burden to show his humility. And they did not know what to expect. They were hoping for a 
earthly Messiah, according to uh, human expectations who would seize the throne from Rome and bring Israel back into its power. And Jesus was not that kind of Messiah. Oh, he was headed to the throne, Mm -hmm. but he was going to go on a humble path uh, with, and he was signaling that as he came into town on that strange and wonderful donkey ride. So there's the beginning. Yeah. Would the donkey, David, be a symbol of peace? It would be a symbol of peace in terms of it's not the symbol of war. The the, the, the 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 war horse would be, yeah, the symbol of war. And the text from Zechariah puts humility together okay. with the coming of the donkey. It's, it's a manifest sign of, of humility. And I think mm-hmm. peace would be a, a good connotation to take mm-hmm. as well. And that event happens in all four Gospels. That's right. It does. Yeah. So it's yeah. a very significant event. It is. Yeah. And that, that's one reason that Christians have uh, uniformly acknowledged it. And, mm-hmm. and often, even churches that don't make a lot of Holy Week will mention Palm Sunday. It's, it's kind of uh, unavoidable, almost, in, in many traditions. And then from Palm Sunday, we move on. And to today, here's, there's no special name for Monday of Holy Week. You can call it Holy Monday if you, if you want to make, <laughs> make up a name for it. Often, what we'll remember on that day is Jesus' cleansing of the temple, mm-hmm. which I can't imagine what a controversial and stunning event this must have been for him to go into the temple and the clean house with the, with the money changers. Also on Monday of Holy Week, he uh, comes to the fig tree that's not bearing fruit and curses the fig tree, which ends up being a, a, a metaphor, a picture of God's first covenant people in Jerusalem at the time with the current leaders that they had not bearing the, the, the fruit that they should have been bearing in season, that the, the long-promised Messiah was among them, and by and large, they did not see it in their hardness of heart. And so that happened on Monday as well. And on Tuesday, the disciples will see how the, the fig tree has withered, and they will see that fulfillment uh, that next day as they come back into the city. Mm-hmm. If we go back to Sunday, because I don't want to move ahead too fast, but Sunday, when he enters Jerusalem, they're very excited because they think that he is going to meet their needs to lead uh, a conquest of Rome. Mm-hmm. And when he is there for uh, seeking the lost and saving people from their sin, days later, they're yelling, crucify him. It's interesting that when we don't get our way, how quickly we can turn. Oh, my. They are... It- He's coming to fulfill needs that they aren't anticipating. (laughs) It's far more important needs uh, that omnipotent wrath is against us because of our sin. Mm -hmm. And he is coming to meet a need that nobody else can meet. And uh, by and large, I don't think the crowds anticipate it. Mm -hmm. It's good that they're expecting the the long prophesied uh, descendant of David to come into the city. Uh, but the designs that they have, you know, the expectations they have, like you see with Peter in Matthew 16, when Jesus announces that he's going to be going to the cross, he tells the disciples for the first time that he'll be going to the cross. And Peter says, never, Lord, which is the words never and Lord really should not ever <laughs> go together. <laughs> never, Lord. Uh, and uh, Jesus so says, get behind me, Satan. You mm-hmm. are thinking in a worldly, human, even demonic way to say that there is not a way the Messiah can go to the cross to accomplish God's very purposes uh, that he wants to bring about through Jesus. Mm-hmm. Well, keep going. So on, uh, on the Tuesday of Holy Week, that that's probably the represents the largest part of the gospel accounts and related to, to Sunday, to Monday, to Wednesday, 
because Tuesday is a day chock full of teaching. Okay. He, now, is he crashing in Bethany every night? Uh, that's what I understand to be okay. the case. Okay, that's yeah. sort of what I thought too. Yeah, going back and forth between Jerusalem and Bethany. It's yeah. not a long walk. Right. Um, and uh, as he is uh, engaging with the scribes and Pharisees in the temple complex, questions are coming. He's answering their questions one after another. They, they bring their challenges before him. He answers their challenges. Usually does not answer the question. It's precisely how they set it up. He reframes it. But then at the end... Is where he does the most stunning thing, and that brings them to silence. He quotes from Psalm 110. Now, what's so amazing about Psalm 110, it's, it, this must have been the most enigmatic of the Psalms in the first century and in those centuries leading up to Jesus' coming. Now, for us as Christians, we know it now. It's Psalm 110 has become the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. But until Jesus made sense of it, it was utterly stunning that David, writing as the psalmist, King David would say that the Lord says to my Lord. So the Lord, meaning God, says to his Lord. And the question is, well, David's the king. So what Lord would David have other than God himself? Good point. David's implying there in Psalm 110, he has some other Lord. Well, who is that other Lord? And that's precisely the question that Jesus asks him. You know, if, if David uh, has a Lord, who is that Lord? And they're speechless. They don't know what to say about it. Hmm. What we now know and see as Christians, that this is one of the most direct prophecies of Jesus coming, of there being this greater Lord, not just one who's David's descendant, because usually the ways that it works is you consider the ancestor to be greater than the descendant. You know, with age, there is respect. And so uh, for, for David's descendant to be his Lord means there's, there's something unusual going mm-hmm. on here. Somehow David has a descendant that is greater than David, which doesn't make sense in the Hebrew mind, unless there's something unusual, striking, stunning, even could it be divine about this descendant, which is what is true of Jesus. Mm. That is such an interesting point, David. And another thing that's fascinating about Psalm 110 is verse 4. Verse 4 of Psalm 110, David prophesies that his descendant, this coming Messiah, will be a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Mm -hmm. That's a very bizarre thing. Because in the Old Testament, the whole priesthood is in the order of Aaron. That that was Moses' brother. The priesthood is set up in the tribe of Levi. It's an order of Aaron, order of Levi priesthood. And so for David, who's the king, to say by the Spirit in Holy Scripture that another priest is coming, this, the book of Hebrews makes a, makes this a very big point. This is brought to a lot of significance in the book of Hebrews, especially Hebrews chapter 7. What in the world is David talking about that a coming descendant, so a king will also be a priest? That, mm. That's impossible under the terms of the Old Covenant. Mm-hmm. If a king tries to enter in and do the priestly duties like Saul did, that got him bumped off, <laughs> like Uzziah did, that gave him leprosy, mm-hmm. the king and the priest are distinct. One's of the tribe of Judah, one's of the tribe of Levi. They should not pretend to be each other. Mm-hmm. But David prophesies that a coming descendant will be both a priest and a king after a different priestly order, the tribe, uh, the order of Melchizedek, which right. goes back to Abraham in Genesis 14. So it, it's an amazing prophecy of uh, the glory that is to come 
in the God man himself, in Jesus, who will be David's greater offspring. Yeah. I remember back as a kid, even making that statement that, you know, the high priest in the order of Melchizedek and being very comfortable making that statement without even knowing completely what I was saying or <laughs> what it right, meant. That's right. But it's I knew how to say great. it. Oh, yeah. It is something, something great. <laughs> really cool right now. <laughs> David Mathis is my guest. He serves as the executive editor at DesiringGod.org. He's a pastor at City Church and an adjunct professor at Bethlehem College and Seminary. We're talking about uh, the last week and his book, Rich Wounds, The Countless Treasures of the Life, Death, and Triumph of Jesus. It is a 30-day Lenten devotional. If you don't have a copy, I recommend you get one. Be right back. I'm back with David Mathis, executive editor at DesiringGod.org, and I want to get right to the point, David, because we got a lot of material still to cover. That's right. So I'm going to talk less and you talk more. Well, you know, uh, growing up, I think other than Easter, I heard of Palm Sunday maybe the second most after Easter, and then probably Good Friday. A lot of Christians talk Mm -hmm. about Good Friday. One that was a surprise to me as I got older and more familiar with the Christian tradition, did a little uh, searching. There's a name for Wednesday of Holy Week. There is. It's kind of a cool name. It's Let's hear it. Spy Wednesday. What? Oh, doesn't Spy sound intriguing. Wednesday? Yes. Spy Wednesday. Spy Wednesday. Now, I mean, what it refers to is an utter tragedy. You know, Judas conspiring as one of Jesus' own. You know, there's a mole. There's a spy on the inside who helps the high priest get to Jesus in an opportune Ooh, moment. You know, like. they're 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 fearful of the crowds. And so they're looking for a way to take that next step to get access to Jesus and arrest him when there's not all the people around at the temple like there is during that Tuesday when they're talking. And Spy Wednesday, we remember the tragedy, and yet God using it for good mm-hmm. that Judas becomes the traitor. You know, he, the spy steps forward to exchange access to Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, which is the Old Testament price for a slave. And mm-hmm. Judas essentially betrays Jesus with a kiss and turns him over as a slave to uh, the Jewish leaders on Wednesday. So we remember that on the Wednesday. Maybe after Good Friday, the Thursday then is maybe the most well-known after Friday. It's called Maundy Thursday. M-A-U-N-D-Y. Mm-hmm. Maundy. What a strange word. Yeah. It goes back I always to, was very comfortable saying that word, too, not knowing what it meant. <laughs> Sometimes people say, Monday, Thursday. You know? <laughs> no, it's not Monday. not Monday. It's Maundy. And Maundy seems to go back to the Old English that leans on the Latin of mandatum, command. I knew that, yeah, David. Right, Come on. All right, all I right. insult my intelligence. I knew Maybe that. Maybe one listener out there wasn't ready for that. <laughs> but uh, Maundy Thursday refers to Jesus giving the famous love command. John 13, greater love is knowing this, that he laid down his life for his friends. As I have loved you, so you should love one another. You know, Jesus gives that in the context of that Thursday evening gathering with his men where they, uh, they celebrate Passover together. He institutes what we call the Lord's Supper mm-hmm. and the, the bread representing his body given for them, the cup representing his blood poured out for them. And he gives his men that love command, that, that love mandate. And that's what's remembered with the name Maundy Thursday on that significant Thursday evening, his last night with his men 
and then they go to the garden. Mm-hmm. You know, Judas goes out early. They go to the garden. He prays in Gethsemane, and that's where he's confronted by uh, the Jewish leaders and where they arrest him. Mm-hmm. That is um, uh, really fascinating about Spy Wednesday. Um, <laughs> Such a strange name, isn't it? Well, it is, but it makes total sense the way you've explained it. Mm-hmm. Mm. So, and, and as we keep walking through the week there, obviously his with his arrest Thursday night, he's in custody all night Thursday. And then Friday, of course, we call Good Friday with uh, that. That begs some explanation, does it not? Why, why would we call this day? It, it, from, from one standpoint, you could say this is the worst day in the history of the world, that the Son of God himself would be put to death by sinners. I mean, the, the utter rebellion of humanity against God himself pictured in that moment of sinful humans putting to, get, putting to death the sinful Son of God. It'd be very easy to say this is the single worst day in the history of the world. And we call it Good Friday. Good? What do you mean Good Friday? How about Bad Friday? How about Horrible Friday? But it is Good Friday. The gospel itself is in the goodness of Good Friday. That when God puts his son forward, this is no accident. Jesus was not killed by an errant ox cart on the streets of Jerusalem. This was on purpose. Jesus said, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own accord, and when I've laid it down, I will take it up again. This is deliberate. It's on purpose. The sinless Son of God is dying for sins that are not his own. As horrible as it is, what man intends for evil, God means same thing for good in the giving of his Son. So we call it Good Friday for good reason. We call it Good Friday in Christ. There's no reason to call it Good Friday apart from being in Christ and seeing that it was my sin Mm -hmm. that held him there. He died for me. He died for sinners. He died for us who claim Jesus as our wrath bearer that we might be related, we might be in reconciliation with God. Yeah, David, we're real comfortable with the expression good news, but we don't have good news without Good Friday. Mm, That's right. We don't have good news without the bad news of our sin, and it's not a Good Friday without the horror the odium, the pain, the terror that Christ put himself through to obtain that good for us. Mm-hmm. As I get older and I, and I read the Gospels and what happened, I, I can't get through it without getting weepy. Mm-hmm. I don't know where I was going with that. <laughs> Just an aside. Well, um, <laughs> if, there's, if there's any time of year, I mean, every day is worth a slow, meditative reflective reading of the Gospels. The riches we have in four Gospels, remarkable. And Holy Week is such a good reminder to walk those steps, which is just a good excuse. It's a good excuse to do a little extra Bible reading, prayer, meditation, that as we think through this week, as we lead up to Easter, there's an opportunity here that we would walk in our souls or with our church community, with our family, walk in those steps that Jesus walked to these events of Spy Wednesday, the tragedy of his betrayal, and the giving of himself over in Gethsemane on Thursday, and the giving of his life on Friday. And then, can you imagine the weight that they went through on that Saturday? Holy Saturday, that's Mm -hmm. the word you can put with it, Holy Saturday, which has been called often in tradition. 
if Friday was the worst day in the history of the world, uh, maybe Saturday felt like the longest day in the history of the world to his people, to his disciples. I mean, can you imagine playing through the horrible images they saw? I mean, it must have been emblazoned on their mind. Talk about trauma. Mm-hmm. What they saw their Savior go through, the one they thought was coming to redeem Israel. They saw him go through this on that Good Friday. And now on Holy Saturday, they linger in their weeping. They have a long time to wait on this. And yet, if they could only see what was coming the next day, if they only knew the hope that awaited them just over the horizon of the next day, which we celebrate on Easter Sunday. Mm-hmm. Boy, in the work that Jesus does in the face of death, mm. the most powerful ever. Right. He has conquered death. He conquered yeah. it in himself, and he conquers it for us over and over again and mm-hmm. leading his people uh, to their moment of death in this life and promising them the eternal life that we have beyond the grave here. Mm-hmm. Do you have anything from Rich Wounds? We've only got a couple of minutes left, a little uh, thought out of the book, Rich Wounds, that you could share. You know, one thing that's... Uh, Unusual, or maybe puzzling, on that to to meditate on on that good on that holy Saturday. That there's a line in John, John chapter nineteen, verse thirty three, that they did not break his bones. Mm-hmm. Very strange. You know, they're coming around with the mallet. They're going to break the bones because there's a a feast coming of Passover. They're going to break the bones of the prisoners on the cross. That way, uh, they can't push themselves up and get breath. Mm-hmm. They suffocate to death on the cross. Yeah. They come to Jesus, John tells us, and he's already dead. So they check, they pierce his side with a spear to check that he's already dead, and they do not break his bones. Now, if they had broken his bones, that would have been no problem for God. God can put those bones back together. He could still raise him just as surely on Sunday morning. Mm-hmm. However, I think he means to give a glimpse of hope on that Good Friday, that his bones aren't broken. Like, what does that mean? Bones aren't broken. What's the significance there? Probably the most famous bones in the Bible are Joseph's bones. At the end of the book of Genesis, he wants his bones taken to the promised land. And when they come out of Exodus, the last thing in Exodus, they get Joseph's bones. They take them to the promised land. And even Joshua reports, they've got Joseph's bones. They bring them to the promised land because bones as the last remaining part of a human that has died represent what is left to be brought to life again. Bones represent what God can bring back. There's the, there's the hope. There's the possibility of resurrection in the bones, which, side note, really good reason for a Christian burial mm-hmm. and not cremation. There's, there's meaning in the preserving of the bones and the hope of resurrection. And so on the cross, in fulfillment of Psalm 34... The righteous man, his bones are not broken. God keeps all his bones. God sees to it there that Jesus' bones are kept. And if we have eyes to see, there is a dazzling ray of hope right there on Good Friday. That may be the moment when the corner turns and we begin to see the glory of the resurrection coming. Fantastic. David Mathis, thank you so much for being with us and have a wonderful week. Thank you, brother. You bet. David Mathis has been my guest. His book is called Rich Wounds, The Countless Treasures of the Life, Death, and Triumph of Jesus. After a short break, we'll be uh, talking to Reverend Chris Palmer. Be right back. It's the Afternoon Show with Bill Arno. Prime time, drive time. Let's get it started. 
Welcome back. If you just climbed into your car, you're going to want to definitely hear what you just uh, what I just had on David Mathis. He gave a, a incredible talk, and uh, you do want to hear that. And now we've got Chris Palmer joining me, who is uh, a Greek uh, teacher and expert, and he is the founder and pastor of Light of uh, Today Church in Novi, Michigan, and founder of the Chris Palmer Ministries. And I have missed you, Chris. Where have you been? Ah, uh, Bill. You know what? I've missed you likewise. Things Good. have just been a little. But out of control, but good to be with you. Yeah, is uh, is life okay? Are things well? Should I be praying extra hard for you? You know, I have a chapter in my doctoral thesis that's coming up, and it's I've been just it's been the ball and chain. I so get it. Keep me in your prayers. No, I get it. Well, we're talking uh, Holy Week all week, of course, and I know you've got uh, some uh, words on uh, Palm Sunday in the Greek, which I'm looking forward to. Yeah, you know, so uh, somebody, I, I posted this yesterday, and somebody said, uh, why, why did you post it after church? We could have used this in our sermon. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but but yesterday we talked about, uh, uh, most people went to church, and, and they got a palm branch, and there was some, some sermonizing going on in different portions of the Gospels when it comes to what we call Palm Sunday and how, how we celebrate it. And I'm sure everybody had some great thoughts and, and received. Uh, so I just want to offer kind of my my take on some of this. Okay. Might, might be helpful, uh, maybe not helpful. We'll see. But <clears throat> we see um, in John chapter 12, Jesus is going into Jerusalem, and he's he's riding on a donkey. And in, in chapter four, uh, 12, verse 14, um, we see this we see this passage that comes forward. Uh, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Uh, which is already irony because here he is going into Jerusalem. He chose he chose not to go on a horse. He goes on this colt, which means that he's not coming with war. He's coming he's coming to bring peace. Um, so John is the master of irony. He's the master of of suspense and just doing what you least expect him to do, um, especially when you're anticipating something else. See, as New Testament readers in the 21st century, we don't expect much. We just kind of just take the story as it comes to us, but First century readers, even during the time before it was written, when it was actually happening in his history, these types of things were would be totally unexpected. And there's something that, that is so rich here that we miss. And it says that the Pharisees see this taking place at the at the um the, the feast that's that's happening at the time, and they find out that this is the Christ who has risen Lazarus from the dead. And a Pharisee says, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. I mean, this is a really important statement. It's going to link everything together. Uh, first and foremost, he's referring to what the Pharisee is referring to here is he's saying Greeks have gone after him. and uh, the People have gone after him, just the masses of people. But the word here in the Greek is cosmos. And John's use of this word is important because he doesn't just refer to races of people. It refers to the sinner, the lost one, the person who's saved, the person who's without Christ. And so the Pharisee doesn't know that he's saying it this way. But John is kind of playing on the Pharisee's word. He's showing that these people going after Jesus, riding on a donkey, the guy who's coming into Jerusalem, not for war, but to make peace, is bringing about salvation because he's on a donkey. He's not, he, he's come to make peace. And he's going to do it through the sacrifices himself. So what the, what the Pharisee doesn't realize he's doing is he's prophesying salvation is coming to all of these Jews, mm. which is really cool. And then, and he's doing that through John putting the word cosmos. But something even more spectacular happens in the next verse. And the way John sets this up is really wonderful. 
as he says in verse 20, now those who went up to worship at the feast, among them were some Greeks. Now, now everything is going to change. Now we don't just see Jews worshiping him. We see the Gentile come into play. We see people who are not part of Israel coming into play. And in verse number 21, it says that these Greeks come to Philip. Now, I think every detail is important. Every detail is, is listed specifically. Why did they come to Philip? Why didn't they go to Peter? Why didn't they go to John? How come they didn't go to Bartholomew or whoever? They came to Philip. And I think that's significant because Philip was only one of two disciples, the other being his brother Andrew, who had a Greek name. I think the Greeks knew his name was Philip and found some level of commonality between Philip and the rest of with themselves and thought maybe they could get in with him because they wanted an audience with Jesus. You're going to go to the person that you're most familiar with. Why is this important? Because when Philip hears this and he knows that the Greeks want an audience with him, he goes to his brother, Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went to Jesus. So the two guys with Greek names now go to Jesus and tell Jesus, the Greeks want an audience with you. <laughs> and Jesus's response is unbelievable. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The hour aura is something that is always about to happen in John. It's something that's in the future. But Jesus says, the hour has now come for the Son of Man to be glorified, which the glorification he's talking about here is talking about his death. And in other words, he's saying, it's time for me to die. And he says, unless a grain of wheat falls into earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. What Jesus is saying is that, now has come the time for him to die so that he can bear much fruit. And the fruit being the fruit of salvation, not only for the Jews that you see in verse 19, but for the Greeks you see in verse 20. And them coming to Philip as a disciple, I think it's showing that Philip is serving as a link that links the Gentiles to the Jews. And they're coming together. And by them coming to Philip, it's showing that the circle of Christ disciples and followers has just gotten massively bigger to include not just 12 Jews, but all the peoples of the earth. And it's going to be accomplished through the one who comes sitting on a donkey who's going to give his life in just a few days and die. Wow. That is a fantastic understanding, Chris. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 to me, I, I think these sorts of things that we see in scripture kind of evoke a sense of prayer to see that you know, just how how deeply um, God loves us. And, you know, he doesn't, it, 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 as we read the Gospels, it's, it's stories like these that remind us that Christ didn't just come for the ones we expected him to come for. He came for the overlooked. He came for those at the margins. He came for the least. Like one of my pastor friends says, the least, the lost, and the last. And that's that's it, it's showing that, that the disciples weren't, his band of 12 wasn't an exclusivist club. I mean, he chose 12, but in choosing 12, it expands now to, to everybody to follow, to follow Jesus. Now, that's, that's humbling. humbling. That's so humbling. It's just such a great yeah. understanding. I love the way you presented this, and I can't wait to go hear it again. <laughs> well, let's, you know, not, of course, next, next Sunday is Easter. Um, and, and people are going to be, we're going to be celebrating uh, the death of Christ. But I think it's things like these that, that teach us that we should, um, you know, just continue to humble ourselves before the Lord and be thankful for all that, for all that he's done and all that he's, you know, accomplishing, you know, through our lives. So I think 
that uh, that has a lot of weight to it. Mm-hmm. Do we want to read any more in uh, in John twelve, or are we are we done? I think we can move away from John. Okay, I think that, that kind of like looks back. <laughs> yeah, that's looks fine. Back at, at something yesterday, I was just on the phone with two brothers from Los Angeles, and we were talking about um, the Book of Revelation, and we were making some observations um, from Scripture. One of the things that I've been I've been contemplating lately um, is, is is this idea of Christian suffering uh, and the suffering that takes place, um, and how you know even as we see in in the Easter story, Christ overcomes the grave and he overcomes his suffering. And then he later calls us as his disciples. Okay, in, in the first century they were suffering to, to share in his suffering, but then in, in sharing in his suffering, you know, we can share we can share in his glory. And and one of the first if we if we move to the book of Revelation, one of the first things that we see is that John introduces himself uh, in here. Now in, in my doctoral thesis, I refer to John as the suffering John. That's kind of the name that I've given him. It's kind of the adjective I've described his name. That he's not just John in Revelation. He's he's the suffering John, because he goes through a lot of suffering and he experiences it, and it's you know it's very it's very real uh, to him. And you know, in when you're when you're writing it, a, a, a New Testament writer writes a book. He usually names himself once. You know, Paul, an apostle by the grace of God through our Lord Jesus Christ, to you in Ephesus, something like that. John John kind of goes over and above that. Um, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, he tells them that the angel gave the vision to his, to his servant John. Revelation 1, verse 4, John to the seven churches who are in Asia. And then in Revelation 1, verse 9, he says, I, John, your brother and partner in tribulation. So John has mentioned himself to the seven churches, not once, not twice, but three times. Now, that's very significant, especially that he's done it in nine verses or once every three verses. Why if, Why would you write a letter to somebody and name yourself specifically three times unless you really wanted them to get the point that it was you? And I think one of the reasons he does this is because of the sentencing that he had. He was sentenced to Patmos. Patmos was a, a rocky place where he's going to have to bust rocks and he was going to have to suffer. He's going to have to take this boat ride. He's doing this at the age in, in his late 80s or his early 90s. He was expected to die and he was expected to give his life. And I don't think the seven churches probably thought he would survive. If they had known he was going, they didn't expect him to survive. But here John overcomes this. He receives the vision that he writes about when he pens the book of Revelation. He tells the seven churches, it's I, John. It's I, John. It's mm-hmm. I, John, and he's declaring that he's overcome. I think we we get a sense of what it means to be an overcomer and to overcome through Christ. I think that's important um, as believers to know that, yes, we suffer in this life, but yes, Christ has called us to overcome, and that kind of sets up that sets us up for hope and expectation. I think that's what the Easter story is all about, is that Christ, his, his, what, what he's done, gives us hope and gives us expectation in him. Chris, it's a great point and a great reminder because our suffering um, is what it is and God has a greater purpose in all of our suffering. 100%. Absolutely. Mm, Yeah. But I think of John on the island of Patmos at his advanced age and it's very interesting the way he was bringing up his name multiple times. I did not think about that before until until I met Chris Palmer. (laughs) <laughs> Should I say my name three times? And well, every time just I Chris come Palmer on show, said that, say... you know, and then I'm great, grateful to have Chris Palmer on the show. Oh, he's grateful to be on the show. <laughs> so good. So 
let's uh i know you've got more you want me to wait till break or you want me just to lay it out lay lay some out now because i want want to get as much of chris palmer as i can uh, before i go to break (laughs) and then after break we'll return to chris palmer which i can't wait for all right well i mean there's there's so much in the book of revelation i mean especially when you look at it from from the standpoint of suffering and you take it from this perspective one of the things that we see in revelation chapter three um is he's talking to the church here in Laodicea, and he tells the church, you know, when we read about the Laodicean church, everybody always goes right to that scripture. You need to hot or cold, so I'm going to spit you out. It's Mm -hmm. kind of like that's all we we see that's in there, but that's kind of not the actual thrust of the verse. The thrust of the verse, in my opinion, is when he says the words of the amen, the faithful are true, and he says the beginning of God's creation. Now, this is one of the most important statements, period, because he calls— and this is what the Easter story is all about, right? He called Christ calls himself the beginning of God's creation. I mean, when was the last time you referred to Jesus? You call him Lord, you call him Savior, great, great. You call him Messiah, great. But you call him the beginning of God's creation. Now, this is a very interesting structure in the Greek because the Greek says, ketesos to theo. The word hearke, okay, the beginning, is a play on words. It's another ironic statement that he's making because the word uh, hierarchy means it means um, the beginning, but it can also mean ruler, ruler or beginning. So I think it should be taken both ways. He is the ruler of all creation. He is the ruler of the new creation because he's the one who created the new creation. And this this kicks back to Isaiah 65:17, where God speaks to Isaiah and says, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. What is Jesus telling the church at Laodicea? He's saying that through him, through the sacrifice of Jesus that we celebrate on Easter, okay, creation is being made new, and it's been created by Christ's death and his resurrection, and he's the one who now rules over it, and that's so important in the book of Revelation because through all the suffering that's about to take place, on the other end of that suffering, you see that new creation, and who enters into it are the faithful, the ones that trust in the, in the creator of the new creation. Oh, so good. I've I've never thought of that, the beginning of God's creation. Never. Well, now you know. Now you can address them like that in prayer. It'll be make it all the more rich. That is so good. Chris Palmer. Let me take a little break. We are uh, learning from the Reverend Chris Palmer, founder and pastor of uh, Light of Today Church in Novi, Michigan. Also the founder of Chris Palmer Ministries. You can go to lightoftoday.com, learn more about him. Be right back. the show. So glad to have the Reverend Chris Palmer on. He's the founder and pastor of Light of Today Church in Novi, Michigan, and founder of Chris Palmer Ministries. He's the host of the popular podcast Greek for the Week, which is on several platforms on the internet. Chris, this has been a wonderful uh, time so far. I want more. 
just like me, all I right. want more. I always want more. <laughs> I think we all, when something is good, we want more. So That's I'm, so I'm true. glad to hear you say that. I'm yeah. glad, well, I'm glad to hear you say that because you know, I've, I've, I was just hoping, you know, I've gotten tomatoes thrown at me. So, you know, it's good that it's good to be here and uh, be like, so um, I think, so let's go, let's jump, let's just switch the subject altogether. I think there's a little study that might be beneficial. If we, if we go to the book of Ephesians chapter six um, and, and kind of, kind of check something out here. One of the scriptures that is most popular uh, that we like a lot is the scripture that says, you know, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, spiritual wickedness or spiritual forces um, in, in the heavenly places. Now this, this has a, this is a really exegetically insightful verse uh, because of the intentionalness of how the apostle Paul has written it. Um, so let's start here. Let's look at it. When you look at the verse in the English, and it doesn't take the Greek to really see this the way that it's in the ESV, is you see the list. He says, we rest against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual wickedness of evil in the heavenly places. Now, why is that significant? Okay, let me illustrate it like this. If I told somebody could you go to the store and then i give a list of what to buy it may sound like this could you please buy cereal milk bread and toothpaste right well that's much different than saying could you buy the cereal the bread the milk and the toothpaste total difference mm -hmm. Because by using the the, or that what we call in, in grammar, a definite article, I've taken something that is unspecified, just any toothpaste, any cereal, any bread, and I've made it very specific. In other words, you should know what I'm talking about. The milk, the 2%, the toothpaste, the crest, the bread, the whole grain, and the cereal, the Chex Mix, whatever, life cereal, whatever. So now I've specified. Well, that's what Paul's doing. He's talking about something that is very specific. What rulers is he talking about? What authorities are he talking about? What cosmic powers and what spiritual force of evil is he referring to? And it's no, and, and I always tell my students, just remember that distant chapters always connect. Things should always come full circle. If you go back to chapter 120, where he's listing and he's talking about the authority of the church having been raised with Christ to sit in heavenly places, okay, and Christ preeminence over the cosmic powers and social powers of the earth. Um, he says in verse 21 that he's been given um, the authority to sit in uh, at the right hand of the Father in heavenly places, far above all rule, all authority, all power, and all dominion, and over every name that is named. Ephesians 6.12, what we wrestle against, is connecting back to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 21, and it's telling us Okay, that we're in conflict with powers that Christ has set us over. And so what that is doing is that even though we're in conflict with it, <clears throat> by putting the the in there, it's signaling to us that we have an implicit victory over them right from the get-go because Christ sits in the heavenlies, which is a metaphor for having authority or has defeated them, and we're in Christ, and therefore we have victory over these powers despite our conflict with them. Well, we're we're cheering here in the studio, just so you know. 
Well, that, that, I mean, that is, so how do you apply that? I mean, I get on my Instagram, I usually put these little stories and, and people always say, well, how do you apply? And that's I a great tell, question. I always tell the people, you know, you tell me, like, think about this for a second, you know, think, think about how to apply this. I mean, that is something you can take right into your prayer life. You're sensing that you're going through some sort of spiritual darkness or spiritual conflict or attack, or your friend is going through that and you have the capacity to pray for them in that moment, to know that there's an authority that's been available to us in Christ. There's a tremendous uh, advantage when we pray, that we, we pray from a place of victory. We pray from a place of recognizing what our Lord has done for us and how our victory is, is not in ourselves. Our victory is in Jesus. It keeps us dependent on him. And so we're able to, when we talk to the Lord, when we talk to the Father through the Spirit, okay, it's because of the victory that Christ has won for us that we can expect, okay, to overcome and, and, and to um, to triumph over these powers which have been, been defeated in Jesus. Now, let, let me I'll add this. So this verse is even more rich. Uh, when it talks a little bit deeper about this, um, we, we see that, again, he's into listing things. Paul has um, tremendous amounts of lists that we see in the book of Ephesians. And another thing that he does is in the same verse, verse 12, he says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. But he says we wrestle against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers, against spiritual forces. He could have just simply said, Bill, we wrestle against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers, and and the uh, spiritual forces. But again, he repeats the word against five times. Doesn't have to do that. To do mm-hmm. so is intentional, right? Mm-hmm. And, and 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 so that's that's signal number one. Number two is he uses the Greek word pros, p r o s, pros. Okay, doesn't have to use that word. It's a more intense word than from. What he would normally use, and that's the word kata, K-A-T-A. K-A-T-A just means conflict, okay, um, against. It's just opposition in, in no specified sense. It would be probably the word you might expect him to use here. But he uses pros. Pros means it's the word that you use to describe more intimate encounter, more face-to-face, more um, standing toe-to-toe, looking at that person, it is a more it's it's telling you the battle is face to face the battle is it's confrontational and our struggle with these powers is as close to us as our next breath is close to us and it's a very sobering warning to the church but at the same time we know we have victory over them because of the work that Christ has accomplished again that goes back to what Jesus has done on Easter, and just how that work extends into today when we face temptations or we face um, struggles or we sense spiritual conflict in our life, we can we can bank on what Jesus accomplished in His death, which will celebrate, which will mourn on Friday, and His res- resurrection, which we'll celebrate uh, this coming Sunday. Chris, it's just critical that we know who we are in Christ. Mm-hmm. It's critical. Yep, it's absolutely critical. And I think, you know, knowing who we are in Christ becomes a reality to us when we when we pray. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's not something that it's not an intellectual 
exercise to tell ourselves we're in Christ. I mean, that, that has to be like my charismatic language would say that has to be something that gets into our spirit or something that gets into our heart and becomes a live reality. And, and to know who we are in Christ, I think we, that doesn't dawn on us in any spiritual sense of the matter until we were people of prayer. And so, you know, those listening to, to this broadcast, it may be a good time here to call you to prayer and, and then prompt you to uh, take some of these truths into, into your prayer closet and to mull over them and, and to pray and to lift up thankfulness to God and until it fills your heart and, and um, permeates your being. Yeah. Chris, you've made my week better already. Thank you very much. <laughs> it's my pleasure, Bill. You've made my week great by Thank having you. me on your show. Thank you so much. Reverend Chris Palmer has been my guest. You can go to lightoftoday.com to learn more about Chris. That's the show we have for today. I hope you've enjoyed it. I'm looking forward to spending time with you again tomorrow. I'm already excited about it. I hope you have a great night. I hope you have a great night's sleep. As you lay your head on the pillow, know that God's, God's in control. He's working out this great plan in your life. Always has been, always will. He loves you. I do too. I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.